Thank you for listening to Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions. Grizz Greats is available on all of your podcasting platforms, whether you use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Transistor. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share. To find all the Grizz Greats, you can just search Grizz Greats on your platforms, or you can visit grizzgreats.com or 1029ESPN.com and click on the podcast tab. Chris Greats is proudly presented by Blackfoot Communications and First Security Bank of Missoula. Well, happy to welcome in studio a junior from the 1995 University of Montana National Championship football team, a defensive end in that team. Had a very big hand and a very important play in that game, but so very much to get to uh, in general. Randy Riley joining us. Randy, thank you so much for being on Grizz Greats. We appreciate it. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very happy to have you here and uh, and so very much to get to, but I want to go back to before the beginning of your University of Montana days to the Mining City. You grew up, went to Butte High School, a Butte Bulldog, and Butte has as rich a history, first of all, as there is in this country, but at least west of the Mississippi, just in general, but certainly for the, from a football standpoint and, and the ties to both Montana and Montana State, but when you're coming up playing high school football in Butte, what was it like in those days in the late 80s and then early 90s of playing high school and just living in Butte, Montana? Well, you know, at the time, Butte had a, an incredible tradition and had played for several state championships, um, you know, when I was in middle school and things like this. And, um, you know, it really did set this stage. We had quite a few players that were playing at U of M, Chad Lamke, um, Paula Prouse, you know, you name it, um, Todd Erickson, you know, they, just some really incredible players. And, um, you know, there really wasn't a question of, of where we would go at the time. Um, I know that's been back and forth over the years. Sometimes uh, Butte gets pretty heavy MSU. And then you're kind of in the middle i mean at the end of the day right so geographically but at that time it was it was coming to missoula that's right we always tease cold anderson i i I told him you know i didn't know about the history of butte on the bobcat side of things until i started covering the big sky and then i realized oh my god all roads from bobcat history lead to butte when you talk about the big sky conference you have jim sweeney sonny holland sonny lubick and on down the line i always tease cold i tell him you're the one guy that could flip the Butte back to being Grizz, <laughs> but you guys had a huge hand in that as well. I know Butte won that state championship. It was in 1991. Is that right? It was. So were, were you on that team? Yeah, that was my senior year. Okay, so that was a. Uh, you talk about the legacy and, and lineage that Butte had in, in football. So many state championships, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And then 90 and 91 was the last one they won all the way until this one they won in 2012 with Dallas Cook and those guys. But winning a state championship in Butte, it seems like it's even different than a lot of places in Montana. What do you remember about that season and what was it like you know, bringing the state title trophy back home to, to Butte? You know, it was actually really similar to my time at, at U of M as a group of folks that expected to win it. Um, Mm. uh, as a group I I remember eighth grade talking about whether or not you know when these teams come together and make one high school team we're going to be really hard to beat Um, we didn't lose a lot of games all the way through it and and um, I think we would have been really disappointed not to be there uh, to be honest with you and I think that's one of the things that both teams um, you know not to be arrogant but you know just kind of felt like if we put in the work that you know, it was ours to lose in a lot of respects. I don't think the state thought that. I think we were ranked eighth or something coming into that season. But um, I, th- I think we had a, a pretty good idea of what we wanted to accomplish. You said 
there was no real question of where it was you were going to go. But why? Like, what was it that was going on for for you or for the school or whatever it was where you said, "Yeah, Montana, that's that's it. I don't need to hear much else." Well, I, I had a couple of siblings that were attending school here, had some opportunities to come and watch games, and you know, two seconds inside Washington Grizzly Stadium, you know where you want to play. Um, on top of that, there had been a, a pretty long drought for Butte High at, at uh, Montana State. A few kids from Central that had, a, had good runs there, and, and you know, congrats to them. But really, you had to go almost all the way back to '84 and some of their uh, stronger runs to really find a, a strong Butte lineage. So. Um, you know, I followed in the footsteps of people I, I looked up to, and um, when I had the opportunity to come to U of M, I, I jumped at it. Washington Grizzly Stadium is is one of, if not the gem of the FCS, still nationally. Uh, it's as, as great uh, and cool and beautiful and location a venue as there is, you know, in, in, in so very many respects. But in the late 80s, early 90s, the change from – having been you know in a park in a field to actually having a proper football stadium which by comparison standards was just unrivaled anywhere what was it like like what do you remember about walking into washington grizzly the first time and going oh my goodness because i mean it it probably had even a greater effect relatively speaking at that moment than maybe it even does today yeah, you know, at, at the time, you, you have to remember the end zones weren't done yet. Right. Um, so it's sad. I think ten or 11,000 is all. And even then, it was it was a, a giant change from what we expected. I remember coming through the tunnel the first day, and and the nerves were, were absolutely, you know, intense. And, and I was registered, and I wasn't even playing that day. So, um, you know, that moment is, never goes away. Every time you come through that tunnel, it's the same, um, whether there was 11,000 or 25,000. Um, it's really incredible to look at that stadium what it's done for this program you mentioned todd erickson and that was sort of at the very beginning of the 37 legacy craig paulson tim Houck, and then todd erickson do you, did you remember looking up to him growing up oh yeah uh you know i have a sister that graduated with todd and um you know that whole class uh were folks that i looked up to um you know uh, kyle merch was a year ahead of them with paula prouse and then you know we had todd lance allen uh chad lampke uh, all on the team when i got here and uh you know they were leaders inside the team they were leaders in the community and um you know incredible football players too but always looked up to todd and and he always did you know all those guys were great about taking us under their wing and helping us understand what it meant to be from butte and a grizzly you know when you were coming here you wanted you know to come here you had siblings here and everything like that was there was there any conversation uh certainly there was conversations what was it like though for from the montana standpoint from coach reed and maybe coach sowers and so on to say okay this is you know this is somebody who we're interested in and want to have in our program well i i don't think they knew who i was frankly uh you know i showed up uh, at football camp uh before my senior year and i was a an offensive guard i never played a down a defense uh, maybe a couple downs in, in my junior year in high school and um you know i was 165 pounds so there wasn't a lot of offensive line positions at 165 <laughs> right. Um, right you know i skipped out on the lifting session during camp and went and played in their passing league and and uh caught quite a few balls and uh so i think they were looking for me at receiver frankly and um you know we had the good fortune of playing against hellgate in in the state championship game and and coach denny his son played uh for for hellgate at the time and had a couple opportunities to pull and i i think um you know they they figured out that i could run pretty well and weren't sure where i was going to play so i think it was iffy um you know for them i think they knew that um i was going to work hard and play hard and you know, they were going to find a spot for me or let me find a spot somewhere on the team. 
Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 national champions, is sponsored by First Security Bank and Coulter. Well, First Security has long been a supporter of the University of Montana and UM Athletics. People might be surprised to know how much First Security Bank, in fact, influenced the University of Montana program and the path they were on directly. Back in 1993, the Grizz were on their way to their second ever berth in the Division One AA playoffs. Previously, in 1989, the only other time Montana had made it to the Division One AA playoffs, and at that time, first round home games awarded via a bidding process. And so, to help support the Grizz football team as well as fortify the faith throughout the community of Missoula, Bill Boucher, former president of First Security Bank, stepped up to the table to help the University of Montana guarantee any potential revenue lost for the first round of the playoffs. And of course, that was recouped in a big way as the University of Montana in 1993 then started the first of 17 straight playoff berths. And in 1995, that local optimism was turned into national prominence as Montana made a run all the way to the 1995 National Championship. First Security Bank is proud to sponsor Grizz Greats and this 25-part podcast series commemorating the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions for Security Bank, a proud supporter of Grizz Athletics and the University of Montana. You mentioned Coach Denny. Was that the primary tie to the University of Montana football program? Was he like your primary recruiter? Um, you know, it was actually uh, mostly Coach Paulson. Okay. Um, and then uh, Coach Dennehy made the trip to my house. Uh, in fact, Coach Green from Montana Tech was at my house the night that oh, Coach man. Dennehy called me. So, um, you know, it was, a, it was a cool phone call to get. And, and um, you know, he was in my living room the next night and, and talking about uh, one of, what I wanted to do. Uh, it was right at the end of recruiting, too. So um, it was a great surprise. Give us the Bob Green recruiting pitch. I mean, that must have been fascinating <laughs> to get Bob Green and then Mick Denny. He's talking about polar opposites, opposite sides of the spectrum. You know, uh, I, I just think the world of Coach Green and, and couldn't say enough kind things. Love um, Coach Green. Just a beautiful, beautiful person. And Twitter know. was actually invented for him. Did you know that? <laughs> like, they went to work. All, all, all the computer guys got said, they, we got to find a format for this man right here. <laughs> Twitter was born. That's it. That is so true. Uh, you know, uh, Coach Green, you know, the thing that sets him apart is he wants what's best. And, and he knew right away. He knew what the phone call was. He could hear what was happening. And, and he actually stood up and said, Randy, you know, look, it sounds like you have another conversation to have. Um, you know, if, if uh, things uh, don't go the way you want them to, give us a call. We'd love to have you. And, and I think it just showed the class and, and where he comes from. It's amazing. One of my best friends growing up, his dad was a Marine who was in Vietnam. And I remember Coach Green came to Big Sky to recruit us, and my buddy's dad was there in the room. And Coach Green gives this whole spiel, and my buddy's dad goes, you're going to Montana Tech. So that's the guy you got to play it. for. Yeah. So this guy reminds me of my drill sergeant in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> we we got to go play here. Well, you mentioned when you come to the University of Montana, when you're redshirt in that 92 year, what do you remember just about what the Grizz football program was? Because you had that nice breakthrough in 89 when they went to the semifinals, but hadn't been back to the playoffs since. But it seemed like there was a lot of momentum internally around the program. Do you remember feeling that when you were redshirting? Yeah, you know, it was a uh, it was a really challenging year uh, for the team. Um, I think we were one and five at at one point and had a win. I think the last five in a row with number two Idaho coming to town, and um, I think that game set the tone. Um, you know, we were we were not picked to win it, and I think we were up by like thirty five or something at halftime, something crazy like that. Yeah, and it just showed me that uh, this is a program that's the real deal. I think uh, you could sense some things that year that this had a, it was a team that had 
had a lot of potential uh, moving forward. But, you know, to be honest with you, I was pretty self-centered at that time, trying to figure out where my position was going to be and figuring out what I needed to do to find a spot. Blackfoot Communications is actively supporting the communities we serve across Montana and Idaho. We are installing hundreds of miles of fiber in our service territories, increasing the broadband experience in our rural communities. We are delivering remote workforce solutions for our business communities. We are creating new, innovative solutions for our local entrepreneurs and enterprise organizations. Learn how your company can benefit. Call today at 541-5000 or go to blackfootbusiness.com. Blackfoot Communications. Connect to more. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. So far, we got you on the offensive line. That ain't going to happen. We got you <laughs> skipping lifting so you could go run routes and ca- catch some passes. That ultimately is not what happened. You were on the entire other side of the ball. So how did that transpire in terms of finding a fit and not just a fit, but a place where you were able to excel? So I went the, the to uh, the home of uh, athletes that don't really have a position, which is with the linebackers, um, you know, and, and, you know, just working through a scout team, um, you know, eventually I found myself playing cornerback. Uh, so from offensive guard to guarding receivers, that was an interesting jump. Um, you know, the receivers had to tell me what their routes were so I could give them a look. Um, pretty soon I got bounced back to free safety and strong safety for a little bit. And then outside backer, inside backer. And, and lo and behold, uh, you know, by, uh, you know, by spring, Coach Paulson engaged with me and asked me how I felt about uh, having my hand in the mud again. So yeah. I embraced that. Uh, by then, I'd put on about 25 pounds over those four months, and, and I could see, you know, a spot there. You put on 25 pounds in four months. Mm-hmm. How? I mean, I've done it, but I was slower at the end. Uh, yeah, you know, I was a late bloomer out of high school. I, w- I was still only six feet tall when I graduated. Yeah. By the by, Christmas of the following year, I was, you know, a little over six one. So I'd grown another inch after high school. Um, and one of the things that, uh, you know, you get at U of M is you get experts. And, and you know, our, our uh, training staff, Phil, um, Phil and Bruce Walwork, you know, they, they pulled me aside and actually told me I was lifting too much and that I needed to slow down a little bit. I was just burning, uh, burning myself up and not giving myself a chance to grow. So we increased my diet like crazy and changed the way I worked out and, um, you know, let my body grow. Your story, that, that story specifically, is not that unique of a story at Montana, but would be unique so many other places too. Why do you think guys from Montana are able to do that? I mean, I had a buddy that played for the Grizzlies, went through exactly what you're talking about. Came in as a receiver, then all of a sudden he's playing corner, safety. And then finally he's like, okay, I'm going to play some DN. It seems like it happens at Montana more often than other places. Yeah, you know, our uh, by 96, our two starting ends, you know, one was a uh, linebacker and one, one was a running back with Corey Falls when he came in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think at U of M, people are, are willing to do what you need to do uh, to help the team get better. And, you know, whether that's a position you, you want to play or, or one that the team needs you to play, we there's been a long tradition here of folks doing what needs to happen. Um, you know, you can look at Cook right now, moving from quarter, cornerback, uh, quarterback to right. offensive tackle. Cook, I mean, yep, for the Grizz right how much now, different yeah. can that get? But I think it exemplifies what's always happened here, and I think that's why you see it here, is that there's a buy-in to the program, and you do what you have to do. You mentioned Idaho, and I think that's interesting, folks. I'm looking at the box score from that 92 game, but that was when Idaho really had a role, and John L. Smith was there. Like you mentioned, they're number two team in the country. Doug Nussbier's the quarterback. He's going to win the Peyton Award, and now he's with the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, the guy has been a, lived a life of football. But what do you remember about Idaho specifically and the Big Sky Conference at that time? So one of my roommates was uh, David Sermon, and his brother John was a defensive tackle mm-hmm. from Idaho and was letting us know how bad they were going to you know, throttle us. <laughs> uh, Jeff Robinson was a defensive player of the year in the Big Sky. 
guy as well that year. And, you know, I, I remember what I remember most is walking in halftime thinking, holy crap, we scored every single time we touched the ball in that half. Um, Brad Lebo had a crazy game. Um, and the intensity level going into that game kind of, I think that set the tone. I, I think the next game that felt anything like that would have been Boise State in 95 for homecoming when they also ran into a, a similar buzzsaw at Washington Grizzly Stadium. So I remember the intensity. I remember, you know, that the expectations were very low and that Don Reed was facing his first losing season as a head coach. Uh, you you touched on the, the that moment at halftime where – we scored literally every time we touched the football. What's probably the most remembered portion of the Don Reed era all the way through culminating with the Dickinson years is that offense and the prolific nature of it. Now we're going to get in to the truth, which was that the defense kicked everybody's ass. And so you are where the, the money was made. But that was such a groundbreaking offense in so many ways. And, and I mean, really, even to this day, much of what we see in, in a sport that evolves faster than any other sport in football is still doing a lot of what was conceived by coach Reed, his staff, that group when you were get scouting them, when you're playing defense in practice did, and and obviously when you're seeing them play in games did you have like this this notion that man we are like we're years ahead of everybody else in in what's going on on that side of the ball. Well, you know, Coach Reed literally wrote the book on the complete yeah, right, right. So, you know, he did design, you know, this offense largely. And, and, you know, I remember, you know, just you talk about being ahead of the curve. I mean, when folks like Lou Holtz are coming to watch your screen package, you're probably ahead of the curve. And <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think it speaks volumes for that coaching staff. You know, that's a coaching staff that would have been successful anywhere. They were great people. They recruited well. Um, they had good foundations within their programs. And, you know, they were – you know, any offense, any defense really comes down to buy-in and execution, and they had it, and they could create it. And, um, you know, great, great coaching staff. And to, to your point, we're still seeing, you know, plays from that offense ran every single day, Sundays and Saturdays. So, um, yeah, what can you say about, about that kind of foresight and, and the way they revolutionize the game? They make it tough on your defense uh, when you run that offense because you're out there a lot. Uh, you score quick, and um, you know uh, it's it's a lot of time on the field. But um, you wouldn't have it any other way. Was it hard uh, on your defense to play against that offense? But then you're going to go play in an actual game, probably against an offense that looks nothing like the offense that you're playing in practice for five or six days in a week. Like I understand there's scouts, I understand you get looks and stuff. But was that odd at times to have this? spread concept thing that you're defending against in in practice and then you go in and now it's you know three yards in a cloud of dust or whatever you know not not too much uh, occasionally that might catch you you know um more when you got to an exotic offense a, an option offense or something that mm. you just never saw um for the most part you know we saw pro style offenses in the big sky and, yeah. and they weren't that much different um you know it's about beating beating your assignment and and doing your job and you know making your reads and, and that doesn't change no matter what offense you play so anything that we had any familiarity with i think that was okay and we didn't get a lot of reps one-on-ones and things like that to your point it's fascinating, too, that the reputation remains the Big Sky is such a quarterback-driven league because we're talking about 26, 27, 28 years ago right now, and it still was back then, too. I mean, do you remember just some of the quarterbacks that you played against back in the mid-'90s? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I mean, think about how many of them ended up in the NFL. I remember Jamie Martin from yep. Weber State was just absolutely incredible. You mentioned Nussmeyer already, um, you know, incredible. Uh, we had a couple – 
pretty darn good ones on our teams <laughs> yeah. coming through there with Brian Iod and Dave Dickinson and Brad Lebo. And, you know, you can go go back a long, long time and look at great quarterbacks in this league and, and the passing attacks. And I think that's one of the reasons Big Sky has, has had some good successes when, when they get in the playoffs, too, is, um, you know, a little bit different wrinkle on, on what a lot of different leagues see. You mentioned the coaching staff and the, the, what all those coaches went on to do after you know, Don Reed retires and every, everybody else rose to such great prominence. They were already so good at Montana, but then remade themselves. I mean, Jerome Sowers at Northern Arizona, Coach Dennehy with his success uh, in other places. My first iteration of covering Craig Paulson when he, was, when he was the defensive coordinator for Coach Houck his first time around, my brother played for Coach Paulson for a year and uh, – to say that Craig Paulson's a perfectionist in his calling place as a defensive coordinator would be selling him massively short. I've never seen someone that's dissatisfied with anything less than perfect more than Coach Paulson, but it was awesome to watch him coach because he's so, I mean, nothing's ever good enough. You better be better. Yeah. What was he like when you were playing for him? Because that was kind of his first coaching job. He was a young coach back then. Yeah, you know, Coach Paulson, I, I, I felt like he was kind of a player's coach. You know, he was right in the mix with you. He took all the time he needed to watch film with you, you know, do those kinds of things. He expected a lot. Um, but all I really expected was your best, you know. He wanted to bring it hard. And you're right. I, I remember one day, um, you know, going on a bucker sled, and, and uh, I, I probably had to hit that sled 45 times uh, because my hands were too wide, um, you know. And, and uh, ultimately I got it. But uh, you're right, he's a perfectionist. I, th- I think it's uh, a great quality to have in a coach. And, um, you know, at the same time, you, you knew he wasn't uh, doing it for no reason. You, you were getting better, and, and he had a purpose behind the things that he was demanding. So, yeah, Coach Paulson was awesome. I mean, every, everything he's ever had a hand in, the defense has defined always the most common factor, running to the football. He, he makes you run to the football. Where, how did he coach that effort in you guys? Because it's so funny, watching the highlights from the 95 team, that Grizz D-line, it looks so much like a 2000 Grizz D-line or a 2008 Grizz D-line. The 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 identity of it is largely unchanged for like this 20-year span. You have to give Coach Paulson so much credit for that. Yeah, you know, I think it was, um, you know, it, we talk a lot about culture in any organization, and, and the culture was that you, you played to the whistle, um, you know, not after, and, and you didn't stop a step before, and, you know, that was practice and practice every day. We had drills called Burma Road that anybody listening to this right now is probably getting PTSD from Burma Road. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it was pursuit drills, and, and it was really about getting to the ball. And, and um, you know, it was an expectation by the coaching staff, but it was also an expectation from peers. And I think that's one of the things that helped us execute really well is, you know, you did it for your buddies as much as anyone else. When you first stepped on campus, your redshirt year, we talked about, you know, maybe Coach Reed was in danger even having a losing season maybe. From that point, though, all the way through – this team just get getting better and better and better, and I think more and more belief. And then you go through it. We talked about the postseason, the Delaware game, and then Dickinson's hurt even though you make a nice run in the playoffs in 94. When you're heading into that 95 season, what do you remember about whether it's expectations, whether it's level of confidence, whether it was conversations that you had with your teammates about what, what this year could be on the front end of it? Well, this goes back to 93, actually, right after the 93 season, uh, summer before the 94 year. Um, and, uh, you know, we had gathered up. Actually, this was this was going into the 93 season. I'm sorry. Um, my roommates and I were at our house on Daly Street, uh, right across, uh, right next door to Food for Thought at the time, uh, yeah. now mm-hmm. Liquid Planet. And 
Um, there were about five or six of us there. Dave Camfort was there, Mike Agee, Brian Toon, um, you know, a couple others. And David Sermon was, was there. And, and David said, you know, guys, there's, you know, what, however many teams, 150 teams in FCS, and somebody's going to win a national championship each of the next three years. And I just got to say, why, why shouldn't it be us? Um, and it, it was a thought that hadn't yet creeped into our minds, I don't think. And, and I think that was a really big question. Why not us? You know, we have a few years to do this. We talked about Dave being an incredible quarterback and coming in from our experience with him in, in spring ball and even what we'd seen, you know, in high school. Um, and we started looking around, and I think we felt like eventually we could probably win the whole dang thing. And, and that's what I was talking about earlier, My the comparison to Butte is I think you got to set your sights on it and plan on it. It's not just a wish, it's a plan. And, and then you got to start putting in the work and, and believe into it. When it comes to Dave, a lot of people have cited that South Dakota State game as sort of the moment, like his, his, his coming out party. But you, having been around him prior to that and seeing him basically in your class and in spring ball and so on, uh, you know, class ahead of you, but having played with him and even in high school knowing, did you, you knew that he, this, this is, this is a little different guy here in this spot before he, did all the things that he eventually did do yeah you know it's it's cliche at this point but you look at dave and you don't you'd never imagine what an incredible athlete leader and quarterback he is and and um you know i think coming in we had some incredible quarterbacks on our team with burt wilberger burt peterson um you know he was highly regarded quarterback out of oregon when he came in and and um you know, when we started explaining to some of our out-of-state teammates that you know dave's probably going to start he's that good I don't know if everybody understood it at the moment, but, um, you know, we just when you go 24 and 0 in high school and um, you're good at everything you've ever done, you're probably going to continue to be good at everything you've done. And, yeah. and, you know, it didn't take long for us to understand Dave was special. He's totally special. I'm stuck on the last part of the story that you just told, though. So you, Mike Agee, Dave Kempfert, Brian Toon and Dave Sermon all live together. Um, a <laughs> I was going to say, what's that grocery bill like? <laughs> <laughs> That's like the starting offensive and defensive line in one house. So there were five five of us that lived together. Uh, Mark Hampy was an outside uh-huh. linebacker. David Sermon, uh, Mike Boucher, uh-huh. uh, Brian Toon, and myself lived together. Um, and then the others uh, hung out at our place, <laughs> close to campus. Uh, you know, Walk we, into food for thought. Close I mean, it down. No, I mean, <laughs> no it, food it, left. There's no. There's no. Uh, an explanation needed for why Food for Thought was one of the most successful outlets <laughs> yeah, in right. the city of Missoula for many years. Was location, proximity to the O and D line. <laughs> that that element of things, though, I think that's so important to a team, right? Is being close with your teammates, having all the guys come around and hanging out like that. I mean, did, did you guys feel that chemistry and connection early on in your careers? You know, it's it's really interesting. Absolutely, first of all, you know, we we actually developed a really incredible group of friends. Um, actually right away during Shrine Game, even during the summer. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of the Hellgate guys we knew from the state championship in football, and we were playing together. Um, we got to meet uh, uh, Blaine McElmurray and Sean Golgachia uh, for the western side of the state. Um, you know, and I think there was a, a really cool dynamic on that team. And what was really interesting about it is that it wasn't, you know, a group of 10 or 15 guys that were really close. It was like 85 guys that were pretty darn close. Mm. Uh, we got together every Wednesday night. Uh, we won't talk about details, but that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, and it, it really was. There was a lot of solidarity and a lot of belief in your brothers, and, and it was just such a cool experience. 
Blackfoot Communications is actively supporting the communities we serve across Montana and Idaho. We are installing hundreds of miles of fiber in our service territories, increasing the broadband experience in our rural communities. We are delivering remote workforce solutions for our business communities. We are creating new, innovative solutions for our local entrepreneurs and enterprise organizations. Learn how your company can benefit. Call today at 541-5000 or go to blackfootbusiness.com. Blackfoot Communications. Connect to more that 95 season I think it was game number two was at Washington State and it was a loss but it was a competitive loss and I think one that a lot of guys felt like maybe what could have should have been a win in some ways but at the very least instilled some confidence like hey it's a Pac-10 team that we went into their house and 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 had a had a real look at this and then two three weeks later it's Boise State number three team in the nation, mm-hmm. and just put it on them. I mean, think 56-20, something like that was was the final score. Coming out of that game in the first half of that season, was there was, was it moments where you go, oh, wow, this is like an epiphany, like we are so so good, so legit right now? Or was it like a, a slow burn, or was it just like, well, yeah, of course we're going to go in and blow the doors off Boise State. This is who we are now. Yeah. Well, almost that same group I was talking about showed up. We we were now moved to North Avenue, uh, so a few blocks away from campus. But I remember the night before that Boise State game so clearly, and we had some folks over, and, and we were fired up. Um, I think we, we we took it super personally that prior year. We felt yeah. like, um, you know, there were some things that went on in that game that, you know, we won't get into. But, um, you know, it was uh, – it was it put a chip on our shoulders for sure and um you know we decided that night that not only were we going to win but we were going to make a statement that next day it was the first day that they opened up the the end zones um which was really really cool and um i don't know if i've ever felt intensity like that or a um an overwhelming you know um just just that knowing that they were in trouble coming in here and um I don't think anybody was surprised by halftime of that game that 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 they were in the position they were in because it was just again it was something that you know our mentality was right our preparation was incredibly strong at that point and we had a really talented team and um, I think we were there to make a statement that game it was really cool. Well, people forget. I mean, I, I think I guess not everyone forgets. Many people remember too. But Pokey Allen is from Missoula, Montana. I mean, Pokey Allen, Boise State's head coach at that time. So there was sort of an internal rivalry there too, right? So I mean, did you guys think of that? That's what's so interesting about the Big Sky now is the Cacker's rivalry is absolutely peerless. I know it was then too, but Montana had so many other rivals too. I mean, do you remember thinking of teams like Boise State and Idaho, kind of like rivalry games? Yeah, I think, you know, if you would have asked us back then, um, and no offense to my MSU brethren, but um, I think we would have probably said Idaho was the biggest rivalry yeah, at the right, time. totally. And then then probably Montana State second, and then maybe Boise State third. Uh, Boise State had just made that surge. They hadn't been that good um, until Pokey got there. And, you know, Pokey has a long, long history in the big sky going back to Portland State, I believe. And, um, you know, I think, um, you know, there, there were such great rivalries during that time. And, and, you know, a lot of people were talking about what's going to happen because when Nevada left the league and then Boise State. But there's always going to be great rivalries in the big sky. Well, I think it was Blade McElmurray that said it right here on Grizz Greats. He, he said, you know, we love the Cat Grizz game, love the Grizz Cat game because of everything it means to Montana, the state of Montana. We understand the rivalry, but God damn, I hate Idaho. <laughs> he said you got mutual respect for cats and then maybe even eastern washington but no way now with the vandals right i agree <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting though 
the last loss that you had of that season was the Vandals, and and it was it was the biggest uh, you know opposing offensive day I think of the season, a fifty six point something like that. And after that game, the stories we've been told by fellow defenders is that actually Coach Sowers was was pretty calm in a lot of ways after that and maybe coach reed as well saying look these this thing happens we're going to pick up and move on how important do you think the response to the way that game went because from that moment on it was lights out for you guys defensively especially which we'll get into yeah you know a couple things happened that was uh, right at the end of the season um that game and if you'll recall we were down big at halftime and actually close that to make it a relatively close yeah. game and I, I think that gave us some momentum coming out of it you know we actually stayed in the same dang hotel rooms uh, for both games at Washington State and then again at Idaho what is it 15 miles <laughs> really? apart or something yeah. so yeah. I don't know maybe there was a curse but um, you know I, I, I think we all went in that game I think we you know probably uh, didn't catch some breaks and I don't think we were as prepared as we needed to be going in the game I think it was a real eye-opener and it was um, shortly after that game that again David Sermon pulled us together and we watched uh, uh, Youngstown State playoff football from the prior year and, and talked about the the level of intensity and how they brought it at a different level in the playoff start and I think we've made that flip that switch the weekend before and and uh, took it to the Cats and then rolled into the playoffs on a high note. Coulter, in 1993, the Grizz football team was looking to host its first playoff game of the decade and just its second season of playoffs in school history. As we know, you got to have some financial backing to guarantee a home game. And former First Security Bank president Bill Boucher stepped up, spearheading a group of local business owners to guarantee that bid for UM Athletics. And that commitment from First Security Bank to UM has never wavered. Bill Boucher, Gordy Fix. Several other business owners around the city of Missoula certainly had a huge influence in stepping up. Certainly some of the first true believers in what Grizz football could become and what they could mean to the Missoula community. Two years later, in 1995, the University of Montana had turned that local optimism into national prominence. The Grizz won the Division I AA National Championship, the first national title in the history of the university. And 25 years later, per Security Bank is still proud to sponsor the Grizzlies. For Security Bank, a presenting sponsor for Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, a 25-part podcast series remembering that epic 1995 season. For Security Bank, proud sponsor of Grizz Athletics and the University of Montana. You mentioned the Cats going into the playoffs, but your group of guys, I mean, you guys took care of business against the Cats pretty darn Pretty darn well. I know I was part of the streak, but was the streak a part of the narrative of in, inside the locker room for you guys? Because you guys were the ones that kind of took it from, I think, 5-9 to nine or maybe 6-10. to ten. I, I guess by the time you were a senior, 6-10 to ten games. 7-11. 7-11 to, to 11 mm-hmm. even. You know, see? So it was a part of the narrative in the locker room. But, I mean, do you, were you guys talking about the streak, and was that something you took pride in, too? Yeah, you know, they, it was uh, you know it was secondary to beating the Cats. You know, that's always the most important thing. And, and frankly, at that point, uh, beating the Cats – was part of getting to the playoffs and making a run in a national championship. Right. Um, you know, so, I mean, certainly we had the shirts on. I still have my seven shirt. I still have my 11 shirt. So, Love it. you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I can, you know, I, I say a lot of things, but, uh, you know, one of the most the things I'm most proud of is I've never lost the Bobcats. There you go. Well, well, we'll come back. We'll get to the, the, the here and now a little later on, but I got to ask you just in this moment, though, how much does it drive you crazy? Montana State's won four in a row. 
Oh man, I, I don't even know if I can say this on. Radio, can <laughs> it's, I? it's a podcast, so it's it, there's no rules governing this uh, here. No, I think it's I, you know obviously it's not what I want to see. I, I love seeing Montana football. Uh, you know, a few few years ago we didn't have an NAIA team or an FCS team in the playoffs. I'm really glad to see Montana football resurging, and you know what? U of M will be right back there. We got a great coach. Uh, it takes a little time to rebuild the program. We all saw how close it was a couple years ago. This year we ran into a buzzsaw, and um, you know, I, I think uh, I think we have the right folks, but I think you got to look down the road and recognize they built a program. This isn't just a team one-off. They're going to be good, and we're going to have to play good to go in there and, and whip their ass and, and put this back on track. <laughs> Love it. Uh, you get into the postseason rolling and shut out, shut out, and then 14 points. Fortunately, your offense came up with 70 in that particular <laughs> semifinal, so you squeezed by Stephen F. Austin. A lot of things fell in your favor. Home games that weren't expected to be home games because of other games, you know, some upsets that happened elsewhere. You get a couple Southern teams to come in, and it's zero or less in, in those games. Nonetheless, what you're putting – 14 allowing 14 points in three playoffs games through all the way you know a run to the national championship that is as as dominant defensively as it can be regardless of circumstance what do you remember about that three game run well you know one of the things that I I don't know if people remember about those days is that we had big leads a lot during that season and and our starters rarely played more than a series or two in the second half very rarely um we talk about it sometimes when we look at record books like imagine if we played more than 15 snaps or 20 snaps in a game um you know so I, i think that that was one of the things that sometimes made that uh that defense not look as good as we actually were um, but when you put us on the field for four quarters and we, we have a, you know, we had a lot of depth, um, you know, rotating folks in, uh, you know, we were a dominant defense that didn't always show that way on a scoreboard um, until we got to the playoffs and, and it's time to put your best foot forward. And, and um, you know, I think some teams came in and understood that they were maybe more one dimensional than they thought. Um, we had great game plans and uh, we had a lot of experience at that time. And I think we were pretty confident we could put together a pretty good run. It turned out better than I think anybody would have hoped for. But, um, you know, sometimes that happens. You see that in the statistics, too. When you break it down like the defensive statistics from 95, you guys had 47 sacks as a team. That's an outrageous number. I mean, outrageous. That, that, that's a, a lot of sacks without a single guy having double-digit sacks. Corey Falls led that team with nine sacks. Randy Riley sitting right here had six sacks. But you, you see... I mean, I think that there's 14 or 15 guys on this list that had a sack. So, I mean, was that part of of, of the, um, I guess, two-part question? How much do you think that, that a lot of those younger guys getting to play helped in the 96 season? And how much did it help you, too, knowing that you guys did have a lot of depth defensively? Yeah, I mean, I didn't start as in 95. Right. You know, and I, I Just in the rotation. Yeah, so you know, I think that that speaks volumes, you know, for for itself. I, you know, I think getting people, you know, looks is is so super important. You know, as we move through, you see it more more and more today. Even, um, you know, it's just reload every year. It seems like at this point, but um, yeah, you know, it was uh, you know, it was uh, definitely a, a good opportunity. I think we had a lot of guys playing that were you know sophomores and juniors. Jason Krebo was just a sophomore at the time. You know, to put that in perspective, so. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of experience over the course of that year and, and having, you know, the leads that our offense gave us gave us that opportunity a lot. You mentioned you, you weren't a starter in 95, but you played in all 15 games and were an, a very important piece on the defense. 
it, you don't think of you, you, in basketball. You always talk about the sixth man or something like that. The guy who you know comes off the bench and gives a boost. Did you feel like you had worked into your role in terms of what you were to this team and to that defense throughout the course of the season? And were you comfortable going into a national championship game, coming off the sideline as as a as a junior and as a you know a, a guy who's here expected to make some plays in not playing every single snap? Yeah, you know I. I you know, I, I'm a little bit stubborn. I grew up in Butte, you know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I always, I always felt like I was always fighting for a starting job, even even ten games in the season. And, and I did get an opportunity in the playoffs to start a game, and, and we moved Johanse back uh, to linebacker. But um, you know, I always felt like I was, I, I belonged in that in that rotation. I didn't ever feel like there was a big gap between our starters and our second team. And um, you know, I was, I felt really fortunate to be able to get a lot of snaps in, in my career. And um, you know, I felt like I. I was accountable just like every starter was to do their job and, and make plays. That's another trend that lasted for quite some time in Grizz football and one that I think they could benefit strongly to, to returning. And I think last year you saw flashes with a couple guys, you know, like Milton Mamula, mm-hmm. Jacob McGoring. But it's almost like there was the sixth-man pass rusher that was part of the Grizz. You're coming in on third down. You're expected to go get the quarterback. You played that role so well. Lance Spencer was a guy that played that role so well in the early 2000s. Uh, but it's an interesting fold that it lasted for so long. You know, you always always had that guy that was going to be the, the pass rush specialist. What's it like rushing the passer in Washington Grizzly Stadium, especially when it is third down and everybody's loud? Oh, it's pretty incredible. I, I mostly played left end, so um, you know I was mostly in the quarterback's face. Um, I would have loved to have had more more cracks from uh, from the right side yeah. and catch some backside. Uh, but you know, gosh, performing, doing anything in Washington Grizzly Stadium will give you a rush. You know, I, even if you're just standing on the sidelines. So you know, to be able to make a play and and, and um, hear the crowd and, and understand that you probably just made someone's day too, mm-hmm. that, that's pretty cool stuff. You know, but um, mostly it's about helping your team and you know taking it out on on your opponent well and then speaking of taking it out on your opponent this game against Marshall I want to talk about a little bit and why don't we start not with the best part but maybe one of the best parts for you you along with Brian Toon made what was probably the most memorable defensive play in that game collaborating for a sack that were two points that as it turns out were pretty doggone important (laughs) when it was all said and done what do you remember about that play in that moment and what what you, what what did, did you think that this was a play? Okay, we we have a chance to get home on this one if we do it right. And then when it happened, you go, "This today's our day." Was that a was that a moment that changed the flow of that game to you? You know, it's um it's incredibly cliche, but we literally said it. I'll see you at the quarterback. Yeah, um, you know, and Brian Brian is a high school teammate of mine. He was my roommate, uh, best friend still still today, and. Um, you know, uh, I was mostly – I didn't realize what was happening in the middle. I, I was going against a giant offensive tackle, I think 6'7", like 360. Uh, you know, it would have taken me, you know, half a day just to run around it. <laughs> felt like it did. Um, but we did feel like we could get off the ball pretty quickly and, and put some pressure on. It was it was a great, uh, you know, uh, great, great field position for potential of a safety. And, um, you know, I, I came around the corner. I got the edge, and and at that point, I saw Pennington starting to drop back as though he's getting pressure in the middle, which he was by Brian. And um, you know, tried to get my hands on him. Um, I I thought he got it away um, at the time. Didn't realize he had thrown it out of bounds and grounded uh, the football. Uh, when we got back up, uh, we started celebrating and, and realized you know saw the refs call the safety, and um, Brian and I connected on our way off the field, and. Uh, 
you know, it was a moment for sure. It was pretty cool. I mean, one of the best parts about Butte, Montana and Butte, America is the stories, right? How many times is that story going to be told, though? The two Butte <laughs> guys get the game-winning safety. Yeah. I don't know. We're getting pretty old. It's like 25 <laughs> years ago now. <laughs> See, now you guys are getting old enough. We're telling it. You can go back to the well over and over and over again. Once you reach a safeties were you we were worth eight points <laughs> at that right. time. You know, we actually counted for a third of the team scoring on that one play. <laughs> well, what we look back at is we got the ball back, and that was probably enough time to to keep uh, keep them out of the end zone at the end of the game too. Right. Right. That's a good point. That atmosphere, what was it like playing in it? Because I think that's still to this day the highest attended FCS football game or Division One AA, I guess, at that time, football game ever at that level. Yeah, it, it was unbelievable. In fact, uh, when Andrew Larson uh, made his kick, I, I couldn't watch. I couldn't watch the kick. So my head was down, and I heard the crowd go bananas and assumed we had missed the kick because ah. we were at Marshall. But it was our own fans that lit up that stadium so loudly that I literally thought it was Marshall. So, um, you know, that that should add some perspective, but it was incredible um, to turn around and see that entire section of, of white and, and yellow and gold. Unbelievable. Uh, that What an incredible environment. The kick goes through. There's still 39 seconds left. Mm-hmm. They, there's there's time and, and a good offense. You started to lean on, you know, you guys a little bit mm-hmm. down the stretch. What was it like that last – defensive stand that ultimately yielded like a 65 yard field goal attempt or something like that that fell flat yeah you know uh they actually had a really good field position yeah um and and, uh you know there were some nerves for sure and uh there was also that confidence that you know we prepared for this and and frankly we've done enough today to win this game we're not going to let them take it so you know i think um you know, hope for the best and, and put your best foot forward. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't comfortable for sure for 38 seconds. Wanting and dreaming and striving towards such a paramount goal like that is such a interesting pursuit. What's the feeling like when you realize that you've achieved it, though, cumulatively with this group of 100 other guys? You know, it's interesting. Uh, it's obviously super rewarding and, and um, you know, exciting and all those things. And, you know, I, at some point, you know, we felt like we earned it and we worked for it. And, and we, I, I think we would have been disappointed not to win it, uh, frankly, at that point, um, even though it hadn't been done before. It's just um, that was their mentality. And we just didn't really think about other things. Um I think after, I think, you know, month, two months after and start sinking in and you start making your, your getting prepared for, for defense, then it starts sinking in that nobody had ever done that at, at this college before. And, you know, it's been, a, had a program for a long, long time. And a lot of folks have had some great teams. And then you start realizing, oh, this was pretty special, you know, and, and to your point earlier, it took a lot of breaks. A lot of things had to bounce in our direction. And, um, and I think in 96 is when I, truly appreciated how difficult it is <laughs> right to, to win the, win that big game so um yeah unbelievable feeling um you know similar to winning a state championship at the same level you put the same work in and um you know there's nothing better than winning right um th- that's such an interesting dynamic though because it's it hadn't felt to me like in speaking with you or, or really anybody else from this team like it felt like that there was a barrier to the national championship. Sometimes, regardless of sport, even golf or whatever, you got the best golfer to never win a major is always somebody's title or the team that's getting close but is never going to get, never gotten over the hump. And even though Montana had gotten close, maybe it just hadn't happened enough where it felt like that there was this thing in the air that hadn't been done that needed to be accomplished. Like it doesn't feel like there was any sort of whether it's pressure or even narrative like that around this team. Is that? Do, does that seem right to you as you reflect on it? 
Yeah, you know, um, I you know I don't think we really thought about others coming up short. It wasn't wasn't about the other teams. I mean, they had done such a great job of establishing the program and creating tradition, and you know, giving us pride in, in who we were as a as a program. But we didn't really think about prior years. It, it had nothing to do with anybody who's not on the field at that time. You know, so we really felt like. You know, this is something that that we can do, and and um, there's no team out there that has you know any bigger or faster players, more talented players. You know, we looked around our locker room, and you know, you go back to those recruiting classes and count how many state championships in high school were on that class, and mm. how many folks were straight A students on the in that class. And this is a group of guys that were willing to work hard and, and knew that that's where their bread and butter was going to come from and put it together with some exceptional talent from, from, you know, certain individuals and some grit from some others. And, you know, it turned out to be a great recipe uh, for a team. And, you know, it, uh, yeah, I don't think we were worried about what other folks had done. It was about what we were trying to do that year. Is that belief of winning, is that intrinsic or is that something that's developed? Because it seems as if that's the thing that has set Montana football apart since this, your guys' group sort of instituted that, but is it, is, it, is it a learned thing or is it something that you can develop? How do you cumulatively attain that refuse to lose attitude like that has defined Grizz football for so long? You know, it's, I mean, it's like taking a vacation. You got to decide where you're going before you can plot your course. And, you know, if, you're, if your destination is going to be a national championship, your course is going to look a little different. Um, it means you're not going to skip lift sessions anymore. Right. Yes. yes. You are going to eat until you're miserable every single day. You're going to bust your butt at practice every down at practice. Um, you know, you're going to shy away from folks that aren't participating in practice, and you're going to go get plugged in and get mental reps when, when you have that opportunity. Um, you know, it's, it's putting your arms around your, your brothers on that team, too, and picking them up when they're down because you know you need everybody to get there. But, you know, you got to plot your course, but you got to know where you're going before you can do that. And, you know, I think it, it, changes, it changes your perspective when, when you have a firm, clear goal and, and you know what you need to do to get there, which is outwork everybody else. Yeah, we talk about this on the show all the time. My thought is that the, one of the biggest diseases and one of the most detrimental things that you can experience in college football, in a college football program, is entitlement, apathy. You can never become complacent. You can never think that it's just going to be handed to you because as soon as you become the champions, that everybody's out to get you, right? So what was the mentality shift like going from the team that was trying to attain this ultimate goal then to being you know, defending national champs, number one in the nation. I mean, you guys had so many juniors on that 95 team, so you guys were absolutely the marked team coming into 1996. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think we welcomed it. I, I think we felt like we were the best team in the country, you know, not knowing what Marshall had that year. Um, <laughs> nice little free agent acquisition. Marshall didn't know what Marshall had that year. <laughs> you know, I remember heading to Oregon State early on, and, you know, a lot of folks look at the FBS, and that was the first game of the year that we unsnapped our pads. I, I think we played one series, our starters, in the second half and won like 38-14 at, at uh, middle of the pack, pack, Pac-12 team. Um I think we were confident coming in. I think, um, you know, we didn't want to let folks down either. And, uh, you know, we had an incredible year of preparation. You know, I, I think I personally put on like 25 pounds between my junior and senior year. Um, we had both uh, both defensive tackles. Most people don't get this. We're both over 300 pounds. Right. Um, you know. Uh, Brian and, Thompson, who's the other one? Uh, Brian Toon. Oh, oh, and the Toon was back for a senior year. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And then, uh, you know, we had 300-pounders across our offensive line, too. I think two that weren't. You know, so it, it was we put on a lot of work and came off a, a good season, as you mentioned. And, um, you know, we knew we were going to be missing some folks with Dave Dickinson, certainly, and, and some of our other seniors that were great. But 
But um, we also had Brian Iod, who not too dang shabby, as it <laughs> yeah. turns out. Um, and we had some great folks stepping up. So, you know, I think I think we felt like we were defending a title. And, um, that you know, come beat us if you can. And eventually with, someone did. With 25 years of hindsight, you said, you know, a couple months after the fact, and you realize you're defending a title, and it starts to sink in, hey, nobody at you know, this has never happened before at the University of Montana to win a national championship. From that moment, seven national championship appearances in 14 years, another national championship victory, and I, I think without question the most dominant program in all of college football for 15 years from that point forward. Mm-hmm. When And you look at what that has meant to the community, to the state of Montana, uh, and and what it continues to mean and the enduring expectation, but also fandom and also support and also interest and in, in things in Montana football. Do you do you see yourself and your role and that team's role in that? And what do you make of that as you think about it these quarter century later? Yeah, that's that's probably you know one of the most um, you know most humbling part of this whole thing is is to think back at at how the how the program has changed um they're always very good always a very good program we had great legacy coming into this but it really did change expectation i mean right now if if, if you lost in a semifinal, people are hanging their heads um no question. Right. after after you know some runner-up appearances people were hanging their heads um you know and i think expectations have changed a lot but you know you think about the community and the way this community you know first of all built us you know, we didn't build the community. The community built us uh, through their support and, and allowing us to expand because it was going to get filled. And when I'm talking community, I'm talking the entire state. Um, you know, I, I think about, you know, kids that are coming here, you know, right now that are kids of, of teammates of mine. Yeah. You know, right. I, I think about, um, you know, Colton Curry, uh, you know, his, his uh, dad, Scott, played with us, you know. So you're starting to see this next level and coming in and playing in a program for the chance to possibly play for a national championship. That wasn't our mentality when we came in. Our mentality was, you know, we're going to be Grizzlies. And it was during that time that we changed that mentality. And, and I think the community adopted that mentality, too, that this is now, you know, you don't take weight off the bar, a famous Brian Toon saying, you know, and when, once you're there, that's that new expectation and, and you got to deliver. And I think it changed some of the players we were able to recruit. I think it changed the way people approached their craft and their work. I think it, it changed the way the community supported us. And, you know, it, it's been cool to watch it grow and continue to grow and continue to get better. You know, it's, um, you know, I look forward to the near future when we get to see them hoist that, that title again. Since then, tell people what you've been up to. I've been doing a lot of banking. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. For, uh, I, you know, I started, um, you know, uh, before I graduated college, actually, uh, with Norwest um, back in 1996 and um, or at the end of 96. And, and I've been with them ever since. We became Wells Fargo in 2000. Um, spent about four years in, in uh, Idaho and Boise, Idaho area and in eastern Oregon. And um, moved that was to- awful, huh? Just <laughs> Idaho going into the belly of the beast in Idaho for, for a time. Man, that's tough. Tough, tough sledding. Yeah, it's always nice when you're wearing the ring, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I came back to Montana, moved, had a chance to move back to my stomping grounds in Butte for, for a couple of years, spent some time in Great Falls, spent about 15 years in Helena before moving back to Missoula two years ago, and um, happy to be back in Missoula. That 95 season, it seems, it's catching up with all you guys is so fun. I was a kid when, the, when this was happening, growing up in Missoula, and, you know, like I told Jason Crebo the other day, when I was eight years old, it was Lawrence Taylor, Jason Crebo. Like that's, I thought he was the best linebacker on planet Earth. And it's so cool catching up with all you guys. 
But have you ever considered what influence that level of success as a young man has had on your life since? You know, it's it's foundational. I mean, experiences, you know, as you get older, you realize experience is as important as anything. And, and understanding, you know, there's been a lot of hard times, you know, uh, through my career and, and um, you know, challenges that come up. And, and you'd realize that you'll get through it. You've been through hard stuff before. Um, you understand culturally what, what needs to happen in an organization. You, that you need everybody with the same vision. Uh, if you're going to accomplish good things that people it's not about what people want to do it's about people what people are willing to do um, at the end of the day and I think you know I've been able to carry that into my professional life and and bring some of the lessons that I learned from my teammates and from my coaches uh, at that time and, and share those with my teams and get them to think about you know what's that thing that it's never been done in our organization. What's that thing that puts us at a new level and changes expectations? And, you know, it's easier said than done sometimes, but but that's the kind of work that, that we try to put in. And I think it's been transformational uh, having those opportunities to learn and grow. It's had such a huge impact on so many different elements of this community. I mean, f- quite frankly, I'm sitting in this chair because of my falling in love with college football because of the 1995 Grizz, watching it on the at the Wilma, right? And but that's just a microcosmic example. You have all sorts of influences this has had. But what makes you most proud about being a part of that 1995 team? Uh, you know, I I don't know about pr- proud, but the thing that I I, I value the most are, are the relationships and the people. Um, I was sharing, you know, before we got on today. You know, we just had a Zoom call recently with our 96 class and. You know, we had Coach Sowers on. We've had a few of them. But, you know, I think we had, you know, 14 people on from that class, you know, a couple of times just having a cocktail and catching up. And, and it really stands out. You know, these are folks that have been successful at almost everything they've done, um, you know, and, and they're just good people. And, and you stand around and you get really humbled really quickly when you realize, you know, how fortunate you were to be able to play with those people. You know, they're not just teammates. They're great people that could do whatever they wanted in this world. Randy Riley, good enough to come in studio with us. We appreciate you sharing your time, your history, your stories. This has been phenomenal. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Go Grizz. Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions podcast series commemorates Montana's epic run to its first national crown. Now, you have a chance to own a piece of history by purchasing a custom piece of art specifically commissioned to accompanying this epic archiving of history. The one-of-a-kind painting features Hall of Fame quarterback Dave Dickinson, legendary Grizz head coach Don Reed, and Andy Larson, the Helena native who drilled the game-winning kick to lift Montana to a 22-20 victory over Marshall on December 16, 1990. Secure this limited edition work of art while supplies last to ensure no Grizz fan ever forgets that historic moment. To purchase number 195 championship, a one-of-a-kind painting by former Grizz wide receiver Ryan Bagley, visit rbagley3.com or check out grizzgreats.com and click on the link or you can visit the ESPN Missoula Facebook page for more information. From full-size canvases that are professionally framed to prints, hooded sweatshirts, and t-shirts, don't miss your chance to get this one-of-a-kind painting by a Montana artist for the great people of Montana. Visit rbagley3.com or grizzgreats.com to make your purchase today.
Thank you for listening to Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions. Grizz Greats is available on all of your podcasting platforms, whether you use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Transistor. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share. To find all the Grizz Greats, you can just search Grizz Greats on your platforms, or you can visit grizzgreats.com or 1029ESPN.com and click on the podcast tab. Chris Greats is proudly presented by Blackfoot Communications and First Security Bank of Missoula. 